Desert Island Discs on Capital FM with Simon Cassiate. She shaped the political discourse of this country every weekend as part of the inaugural cast of the Capital Gang. Today, she is the executive director of the UNAIDS, but also in that capacity, she serves the United Nations Under Secretary General. Am I right? Welcome. Good evening. Welcome to the program, Winnie Vianyuma. I have a whole A4 page of uh, introductory superlatives, starting from the first Ugandan woman to graduate with an aeronautic engineering degree to all the firsts that you have become. You are, without a doubt, the embodiment of a lady that has broken the glass ceiling, for which many women have not been able to even get so close, even half sight of it. Again, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. We haven't seen you looking all fresh. You don't even look a year older than uh, when you left this place going and, and start your international career many decades ago. What keeps you young, Winnie? You guys are a flatterer. Ah. <laughs> well, thank observant. you for the compliment. <laughs> you must welcome. What keeps me uh, alive and well is the joy of living and of fighting injustices gives me, I get a kick out of it. That's strange. We thought for every fight you go away with a lot of wear and tear and bruises and all that. You looks like you get the opposite. Oh yeah, you get them too. I mean, when you're going against the grain, the mainstream, and you're making a case for justice for those who are underserved or not served, you get some knocks. But let me tell you, you get a lot of joys too. You get a lot of affirmation for those who, whose interests you speak up for. Many a times when we host folks in the studio, there is always the temptation of getting a bit, you know, starstruck and, uh, you know, now with all these titles you hold and the responsibility you carry on your shoulders. I see UN Executive Director for UNAIDS. Wayne, just to run us through for just one minute, what your job entails? Uh, my job today is to lead a global program of the United Nations to fight to end AIDS by 2030. So my job is partly normative, that is to say, to mobilize the whole world to agree on targets, to agree on a strategy, how to achieve them, to find the resources to fight, to put in place the laws that will enable it. So I mobilize, I get agreements across the world on how to fight this, where to, how ambitious to be. And then I also support countries. In every country where there's a high burden, I put a team there and the team helps to track, to know where the epidemic is, how it is going, who needs to be protected, who needs to get on treatment. We support those efforts in every country. So that's my job. And I love it because HIV AIDS is not just a disease. It's actually an injustice because we have what we need to prevent it from infecting people. We have so many tools to, for prevention. We know what to do. We also have so many treatments that if you have it and you take a treatment, you can live a healthy life like anybody else and die in your 90s like anybody else. So we have all that. There shouldn't be a new infection. There shouldn't be anyone dying of AIDS. But if they do, like we have here in Uganda, it's because of injustice. It's because those people haven't accessed what they need. And it's my job 
to work with others, to deal with that injustice, put it away. Wow. When that sounds like the stuff insomnia is made of, do you ever get a moment to sleep? Uh, yes, I sleep, man. <laughs> oh, <really? laughs> what, a blink? <laughs> but to tell you the truth, yes, uh, this kind of work, it takes your passion. You work so hard at it. There's always something to do. It's exciting. It is painful. It's all that. But you have to do self-care too. You have to take time and take breaks and be with family and, and all that. recharge your battery. Absolutely. Later on in the program, of course, we'll get to know how in greater detail how you recharge your batteries. For example, what kind of meals make it to your best dishes list? <laughs> what gives you a good laugh? And things of that nature. But be that as it is, seated at the pinnacle of the role that you hold and without a doubt the pinnacle of the world, don't you sometimes pinch yourself and say, is it, is it me? The little girl from Ruti Nambara, somewhere in East Africa in Uganda, that is at the helm of this responsibility. That's true. It's true. Because I've never stopped being the girl from Ruti. I love Ruti. Uh -huh. It's still my village. From my iPhone, I'm all the time in contact with someone on chatting on WhatsApp, going there to see the folks down there. So, yeah, I sometimes think, really, that journey I made from that little town where people are still very poor to being a global leader who works in the cabinet mm -hmm. of the Secretary General of the United Nations. How did I get there? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a humbling story and it's also something of an accident maybe. Perhaps uh, I don't know. divine intervention or should we say yeah. preparation? Yeah, I don't attribute it just to myself. It's many people who made me. It's so many people, yeah. It would also be another injustice if the folks listening to us from Ruti right now, from our booster station in Barra, are not greeted by you in the local dialect. At least say hello to them. Eh, I'm so happy to hear you. In the predominantly spoken ones in there, Runyankore and Uganda. Yeah, there are two languages there. While I was making the preps for the program, someone said, did you actually think Winnie remembers any local language? How wrong we were. Ah, I left here with all my teeth. And How can I? Never, I cannot forget my languages. Now that you mentioned Ruti mm. and your heritage, take us back to where it all began. Ruti, yes. We, mm. uh, well, it, it may appear like common knowledge, we know your parents and all, but just tell us where you born, to whom you were born. Mm. Yeah, and I know you're not shy to mention when you were born. Oh, no, I'm not. <laughs> I, was I was born at the end of the 50s, 1959, and I was born to two teachers. My mother was teaching in primary school. Mm -hmm on a hill called Nyamtanga in a girls' school. Wow, that's St. Helens? St. Helens. My father was an Anglican teaching in the Anglican boys' secondary school, Barra High School. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was so much tension between Catholics and Protestants at that time. Has it changed much? Mm, probably it has improved a bit. But okay. that time it was hard because uh, the Anglicans were in power. The British, it was colonial times. And they were holding the jobs, and Catholics weren't getting jobs. So there was tension about employment and things like that. So when my parents married, 
before my father married my mother, he chose to set up his home, not on the Anglican Hill, mm -hmm. which was very posh and had a cathedral and the white missionaries lived there. No, he just went and bought a piece of land in the poor neighborhood that was majority Muslim, actually. Ooh. And he bought this piece of land just and, uh, and built his home right opposite a mosque. So we grew up in... Listening to that wake-up call for prayer. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I <laughs> love funny. it. Everywhere I am, when I hear it, I feel nostalgic. <laughs> yeah. So we grew up in a poor neighborhood, mostly Muslim, and many were even Baganda speakers. Somehow, if you became a Muslim in Nankole, you'd start speaking Luganda. Don't ask me why. I also don't know why Juma prayers in... Arua. No, I know why. It has, it has <laughs> to do with the, the religion starting in Buganda ah, okay. and learning it in Luganda and then as it spreads throughout Uganda. It goes with the language. Yeah. Okay. Just like us, in, I remember in um, our prayers, Christian prayers, mm -hmm. in, we are partly in Rutoro, Runyoro. Again, because, the because the, yeah, 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 yeah. Ah. So things like that happen. So anyway, we grew up in this poor neighborhood. But it was so loving and so have good memories because my mother quit teaching when we were three kids. She couldn't manage to keep the kids and walk to school. Of the Bianima children, what's your position? Second. Great. Mm. So I'm um, second to a girl, mm. my sister Edith. So actually, when she stayed at home, because she wasn't working, but she was homemaking, she mobilized the women in the village and they asked at the mosque if they could build a kindergarten at the, at the mosque. They had a lot of land and the mullah agreed. So then they started a project to build a whole primary school at the mosque. At the mosque. So every year we had work to do. Every time we'd go home at the weekend, every, every weekend we all had to go down the river, collect reeds collect uh, clay, which was used for building. And cow dung, maybe. Also. Cow dung. Yes, then going to get grass and then getting to... We were part of a building project. This... All of us, my mom's children, the other moms, everybody in the community. My mom was a community leader. Sorry to you know, interject in here, Winnie, but the stuff of collecting reeds, mm. clay, mm. and you know, getting involved in building and getting dirty, that's mm. stuff for men, boys. How come your mom didn't see a problem with you being part of this incredible work as girls? My mom was an early feminist. There was mm -hmm. no job that was... She, she had been raised by French-Canadian nuns wow. who were very hands-on. They were very self-sufficient in their convent. They grew their own food. They had some cows and milked their cows. They, they fixed their, their furniture. They, they fixed their the furniture. <laughs> they sewed their curtains. They did. And my mom was like that too in our home. Wow. And she taught us that there's no job that's a man's and a woman's. You do every job. Wow. And you get it done. And she had women's clubs in our compound. They would sit there learning, doing craft making. They would do income generation activities, they would do childcare. I remember we would make our banana fiber dolls, mm -hmm. bring them, and then she would have a basin there and she'd give every woman a turn 
to wash the baby, wash the doll. Uh-huh. So that they, teaches they, they yeah, they really learn how to do the proper child care. So all that stuff made me love women's work. Eh? And uh, I was conscious from an early age that it's fun to work with women. I've never bought into this myth that women hate each other, women are each other's enemies. That's not the yeah, story of my PhD life. Pull hard down. No way. Um, I've met women who are competitive. Yes. I've met men who are competitive. So it works across. It's not particular to women to hate each other. You can meet a woman you don't get on with. Uh, just so like you can meet a man you don't get on with. We were not made to hate each other. Actually, we work together so well. Wow. And uh, I've spent my life in women's groups, women's movements. I thrive there. I'm lost without other women. And uh, I just dismiss the story of women hate each other. Can't agree with you more. But let's go back to that, you know, domicile of the Beanyumas in Ruti and doing all these shows that you were. All this while, what's your father doing in as far as seeing his wife and the other women being self-sustaining and carrying the girls along and doing what otherwise boys would do? Yeah. He never tried to say, but you, how come you're beginning to as if wear pants? No, not at all. In fact, um, if I can take you back, when I was born, he gave me a name. The name was Karagwa. That's what everyone calls me back home. Huh? I saw that on a campaign poster sometime. Back. Yeah, this always, it's my it's my middle name, and yeah. I'm proud of it. But uh, when you go to when you get baptized, they give you a name like Winnie or Simon or mm-hmm. what. But there's uh, your birth name. Yes, true. Karagwa is mine. And when I was growing up, my mom's, I said to my mom, "Why do you think Dad called me Karagwa? Am I the one going to inherit?" Because Karagwa means the one who will inherit. Karagwa, yes. Said, but why did he call me this? Because I'm not the firstborn, mm-hmm. and neither am I the first son. Because the sons were born after me. Mm-hmm. We were first two girls and two boys. Mm-hmm. And said, why did he mean I'm the heir when I'm the second born, a girl? Why? Then my mom said, Mm-mm, that's not what he meant. He meant the other meaning of that word. Mm-hmm. And the other meaning is akaragua, destined. Wow. Akaragua, destined. Said, destined to do what? Said, he was worried that he would have only girls. So he said, he named you his fear. Destined mm-hmm. to have only girls. Because in our tradition, when you name your fear, then it runs away. It never happens. And indeed, after you... A boy came. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I went to my dad and mm-hmm. I said, Uh-huh, Tata, tell me. You didn't want me when I was born because I was a girl. Is that mm-hmm. the case? And he said, Who told you that? My mother said, Forget about what she told you. She didn't give you that name and she doesn't know why I gave you that name. That's not true. Mm-hmm. I called you Karagwa because you will inherit. And I said, ah, uh-huh. so I am your successor. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he said, I said you will inherit. And he stopped there. And I said, but I'm not a boy. He said, there's no boy and no girl in my house. You're all my children, you're equal, and you will inherit. So we How went to- How were you in that conversation? I think I must have been four or five, I but it became a story of my life with him. We kept playing with this name. And I kept telling him that, hmm, 
you didn't want me, I know. And then he would laugh, he would laugh, and he would say that, come on, you will inherit, you know it. Then when I became a member of parliament for the area, no, first, when I made it King's College Budo, yes. he took a look at me and he said, Karagwa, I told you you would inherit. Wow. Ah, then it hit me that I had gone to the school where he went. His college Budo. Yes. So that made me understand that he, in inheriting, he meant you will take forward the things that are so important to me. Because wow. he loved his school Budo. Like he, all Budo. He did. <laughs> and he was proud of Budo. So, so I, I started to understand that he means stand for my values, stand for what I believe in. That's what I mean you will inherit. But to be fair to him also, when he died a couple of years ago, where we were six children, four girls, two boys, he made us equal. We shared whatever he had equally, wow. completely. Now we know that mangoes don't fall from apple trees. <laughs> I saw now pick for me that you had a very special relationship with him. Yeah, I did. But I know we can go on talking about this till the sun sets like it has now. On this program, Winnie, we play our music. Mm. We need to know what makes it to your fancied music tunes. Okay, the your first song? My first song is by Louis Armstrong, mm -hmm. What a Wonderful World. Because really, I, I love life and I love the world we live in. This, even with all the horrible things that happen in it, I'm an optimistic person, always trying to work for a world that's just and beautiful. And this song gives me joy. Tremendous. And with the lyrics of the song and the baritone voice of Louis Armstrong, and the incredible storytelling skills of William and you might believe tonight this day and this is something else. But we'll be right back. Stay with us. Red roses too I see them blue For me and you And I think to myself what a wonderful world I see skies of blue And clouds of white The bright blessed day The dark sacred night And I think to myself What a wonderful world The colors of the rainbow, so pretty in the sky, are also on the faces of people going by. I see friends. Here's the silent discs on Capital FM with Simon Cassiate. Welcome back. And yes, like all beautiful things, we can't play the entire song to the fullest because, again, this is an incredible story that we can't hold on without continuing with it. Winnie, and sorry for calling you by your first name. I, I, I would want to, not in any disrespectful manner, but just have this conversation with you for you to tell us more about your life story. So you make it to Budo out of the aspiration to go to the school your father went to or for other considerations. And then they also had a special uh, emphasis on mathematics. 
and I, and I was so good at maths and I wanted really to excel in mathematics. So I decided I was going to go. I had a bit of a fight with the sisters who didn't want me to leave, who what thought, <laughs> I don't know, no, I think I, would, I was quite a, an ordinary student, but they wanted to always protect their girls and they didn't like the idea of going to a mixed school. But um, I insisted, my father supported me, my mother was terrified. She didn't want me to go to a boys' school, a mixed school. Mixed school. Yeah, but she, in, in my parents' home, we had our rights. It was what I wanted, so it had to be. So I went to Budo, and indeed it turned out to be quite a good experience too. We were a minority, we were very few girls. I was the only girl in a class of 30 boys. Ooh. And I have to say that I literally lost my voice those two years. I hardly spoke. I only spoke because I needed to speak in the classroom, to often to push back if boys were taking my space. But I had amazing teachers who's, who encouraged me. Yeah, I remember a teacher called Mr. Zimbe. Oh, Mr. Zimbe just loved me because he would make sure in each of his classes I speak. I'd be sitting at the back, keeping quiet, As absorbing. Where were you sitting? At the front? Of at the back. At Buddha, I sat at the back. And Namagunga, I always sat on the front. But at that, Buddha, I sat at the back. That's what happens when, you're minor when you feel a minority? When you are a minority, yes. And it takes a good teacher to pull you up and help you to, to shine too. Mm -hmm. So it was a good experience in that sense. And... I came out with very good grades and went to Makerere. And those boys I went to school with, I like them so much. We are still on a WhatsApp group oh, together really? and we talk. Mm -hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. They must think, oh my goodness, this girl from the back seat to the top of the world. No, I don't know what they think. <laughs> they are also well accomplished. They are also high accomplishers in medicine, in all kinds of in engineering. I mean, they've all done really, most of them have done really well. And when we meet there, we really meet on the platform to share stories like old people wow. about our kids, our <laughs> I know <laughs> and our the, gardens. And, and, and the and the beauty of growing up. Yeah. When other than reading hard and excelling in class, did you do any other thing at Mount St. Mary's Namagunga or in Budo? For example, do you play any sports? I know I was not sporty. I was not good at sports and honestly nobody was when we'd go to the field like in um in primary school or in Namagunga, and they were making teams. Nobody wanted me in their no, team because oh I couldn't catch the ball. I'm just not gifted there. How about with the cheering? I, yeah, I could cheer. There you were. Yeah, I would know? be a cheerer, but yeah, I had just a hard time in the field because nobody wanted me. When I would run, I'd be the last. It, it was a place where I learned to be humble because <laughs> I just was never going to be a winner there. I know. But um, I, I enjoyed clubs. I was usually in the debating club at I King's College Buddha. I was in the I was in the Nightingales at Budo, that's a choir. Wow. And I used to sing also in the choir in Namagunga. I would be on stage. I was often in the school plays. I love drama. Oh. So that's I was more in the artistic side of things. How about the picadillos of politics, early school politics? Did you get No, no, no. I was made a prefect both in Namagunga and in King's College, Budo, but not by asking for votes. Mm -hmm. It's just the teachers decided. So what effect <laughs> were you? In, in, in Namagunga, I was a monitor. In Budo, I was a monitor. 
one of the dormitories. Ah, okay. Yeah, and in Namagunga, I was also, they called it supervisor for uh, a dormitory of the senior two girls when I was in senior four. So they would choose me to be a leader, but I never, we didn't, we didn't have those competitions for being a leader in, at my level. No. But with the benefit of hindsight, did you actually think that leadership as is now with you today was where you were destined? Remember your name? You don't know, I don't know what you mean by a leader because you're always a leader. I mean, at home, where I, when I was growing up mm -hmm. in, uh, in our home, I often had special responsibilities, just like anybody. I was a home librarian, for example. Wow. I remember when I first saw the library at Namagunga, even the library at St. Helens with books that are well coded. I, I learned how they code. I went back home because I was in yard, but by author, by publisher, by by theme. By your publication. <laughs> yeah, and I organized all our books uh, 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 like a proper library. Mm -hmm. I was also the one who had the responsibility to organize, clean and organize my father's office. Wow. That gave me privileges because he used to lock his office. Nobody was allowed in. Except you. But I was allowed in and I could spend hours there claiming to be cleaning his office, but really going through all his files and reading them. And let me, shall I tell you some of the things Please. I found out uh -huh. there? He was meticulous at keeping records. Mm -hmm. He had records of the students he taught at Mbarra High School. So I could go through records of their grades and all his later on very famous people, Kategaya, Museveni, Abanyabushega, who so guess, how they performed it. Uh, Kanyomozi, mm -hmm. all those who went through his hands, I could tell how they scored on this test. How they <laughs> I imagine when eventually you get to meet them now, much later in life, you're looking at them and saying, now look at this guy. No, 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 I don't remember. I don't remember, but they were all very brilliant. <laughs> Winnie, now the politician in you comes to life. But let's go through now. You're out of Budo. Mm. You pass, you ace your examinations. And you're admitted at Makere. But even at Makere, you didn't stay there long. From what I read, you were out of this country to study your aeronautic engineering. Am I right? Yeah, I, I left after one year. After one year. Mm. What well, are the circumstances that got you It was sad. It was a sad story there. Because first of all, it was under the, re the regime of Idi Amin. Idi Amin yes. You see, for people of my age, our... Our childhood was disrupted by Amin. I was turning 12 when Amin came to power, and I was heading for S1. And uh, throughout our teenagers, we were frightened children. Eh? We're seeing people being killed. They would pull girls out of their class. At Namagunga, they'd come back. And at Budo, they'd come back after a week with a shaved head. Their father had been killed. And they couldn't talk about it because if you talked, then it means you are saying someone died. People were burying people quietly because you dare not mention that because it's a soldier who has killed a person and they don't want anyone to know. 
So we were frightened. I mean, was burning women's clothes, burning wigs, burning dress, short dresses, mini skirts, burning lipstick, all this stuff was making us insecure. In Barara, there was a purge of Barara barracks of all those young men who were there, mostly Acholi and Langi soldiers. They would kill them, put their bodies on a lorry, and throw them on the ranches. We owned a ranch 17 miles from Barara. They were throwing dead bodies there. Huh? And uh, to the point that they were rotting there because you, you, my, the, the you farmer, the herdsmen would just come and cover them just for decency. Just cover them with sticks and branches and all that. Yeah, but they couldn't dare to dig a hole because if the soldiers know that you're burying someone, then you're acknowledging that they killed. You, you, you are supposed not to know. Hmm? Even with the full sight of a decomposing body. Yes. So I saw all this. Come to the ranch with my dad once in a while and find that happening. They've just dumped a whole lot of dead bodies there. I could tell you more terrible things and... Uh, it was a hard, hard time. So at Makerere, we were also not safe. And a series of incidents happened that I won't go into here that led me to escape. My mother took me. She helped me get her passport on a back street. You couldn't get an official passport. There were people selling documents. We bought one. And then she took me by a Kamba bus from Kampala, we were at the border, Busia border, by Busia Malaba, by evening, and then we had to take a Panya road. Oh, you wouldn't go through the official immigration? No, because you had a fake document. Mm -hmm. And then when you go through the Panya road, Amin had decreed that anyone found on a Panya road must be assumed to be a smuggler and shot on sight. So we, my mom took that risk that we could have been shot on sight. We crossed on foot, hired someone. Somewhere you get a guide because you don't know the routes at night. He carries your suitcase, you cross, and then the, the bus will be on the other side waiting for people to come and board. Or because this was not an operation of one individual or two. There were several no, many people, you. each one taking their panya road. Mm. So you got there in time, got onto our bus. By morning, we were in Nairobi. Few weeks later, Nairobi was full of Ugandan refugees. They helped me get a tourist visa. And with that tourist visa... With your fake travel document? Yeah, I <laughs> arrived in England and declared myself a refugee. And those were good days, man. Because they didn't doubt me. How do you then start, how do you raise your hand? Oh, I'm a refugee. Like, I hey. details of... I'm telling you, it was even worse than that because when I arrived there, my mother had given me $300, which she also bought on the black market. There was no formal, there was nowhere you could go but to I the bank and get money. <laughs> so we, we, you had to look at them over and over. We got an expert to look to see if they are real. Ah, and then I got my $300. So I landed. Immigration, I tell them I'm fleeing a mean. I tell them my story. And then they say, okay, we are going to keep your passport and we are going to 
uh, invite you for a meeting at the home office and we'll decide your case there. But for now, come in. Welcome. You're welcome in the country. So I come in. Then the first thing I go to change, hundred dollars. I'd been told change a hundred because you need some British pounds to get into uh, a, a taxi, a whatever. Black cab. Yeah, and there was a Ugandan who was coming to meet me, but oh. just in case the person is not there, mm. somebody who had been in exile a longer time. So I go straight to a bureau to change right in front after immigration, and I put their hundred dollars. And they receive the money, they look at it, they look, they look, and then they say, oh, have a seat, madam. So I sat down, I waited. About 15 minutes later, a big, tall policeman comes in and he talks to them. I see them talk, I can't hear what they are saying. And then he turns to me, now he's holding my $100. And he looks down at me and says, Mom, do you, this is the money you brought. Do you realize that this is a fake $100 bill? I just started to cry there and then. I said, no, I don't know that it is. But wait a moment. I got, I got the other. money on the black market. He said, what do you mean black market? I explained. In Uganda, there's no bank where you can go and exchange your shillings. We all have to get it on the black market. He says, Mom. You have just committed forgery, and there is a maximum sentence of seven years in jail for forgery. This is a forged document, forged money. Said, I didn't know. I, I even have 200 more oh. here. I don't know what is fake. I, was, you know, I just bought it because I needed money to arrive here. Should I say, even the passport, I'm not sure why it's And I was crying, <laughs> and I was crying, and, and he looked at me, and he said, young lady, I believe you. He took that piece, that knot, he tore it in my face, in front of me, and he said, now listen, let them check your $200. So they, they put them in the machine, they, the bank, the Bureau de Change, they checked, they found they were real. Oh, they oh. hand them back to me. And then he said to me, now, never, never, draw any money from anywhere except a proper bank. bank. Do you hear, young lady? <laughs> I make myself clear. Yeah. Uh -huh. it was, he just forgave me. Those are old days, man. These Good days, day. you, when you see how migrants are treated, huh? these days they die in the Mediterranean True. because borders are closed to them. But the world was a better place then. They allowed me in. Within a couple of months, they accepted my application for asylum. I applied for a scholarship. I got a scholarship. And I was on my way to Manchester University to, to study aeronautical engineering. Why, I was very lucky. Why aeronautical engineering? Why do you choose that particular course? Because I thought... There was like 100 planes in the world at that time. <laughs> yes, at my, at my career, I had started studying electrical engineering. Mm -hmm. I could have continued with that. But I thought... If I want a scholarship, I better ask to study something that no one has ever studied. That will make the committee giving a scholarship really want to have you in there. To <laughs> give me a scholarship because I'll be breaking a barrier. Mm -hmm. So I said, I looked, there were so many types of engineering. My God, they, they were all spoiled for choice. Can you the British universities had everything under the sun. 
but aeronautics um, sounded like, I don't know anyone who's done this, man or woman, let me apply for it. There was no particular interest, really. Wow. It was just to be different in order to win a refugee scholarship, but and I did. But weren't you afraid this would be as hard as nails? No, 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 no. It wasn't going to be hard. There was nothing that was going to be hard for me. I've already proven to myself that I'm gifted academically, that I'm as competent as anyone can be in studying mathematical subjects. So I, 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 I had no at fear. At an early age, you also knew that you embodied the word greet from the first letter to the last. Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I, I knew I had to work hard on my studies, but I never doubted that I can, that I, I would fail. No, I never had any doubts I can fail. Because you see, when you have been through primary, secondary, uh, upper secondary, by then you know that certain things come to you easily mm -hmm. and that you, it's only being distracted that can lead you to fail. But I, I, I had a purpose. I knew, first of all, I was angry at leaving Uganda. I didn't come happily. It hurt me so much to leave Makerere and my friends and we're really having a nice time I to be imagine. free to be in our campus, but was still the thought that having declared myself as a refugee meant that I could never return before Amin fell. Yes. And I had no idea when he would fall. That you so, never get to know. So I kept thinking, so if my father dies, if Amin kills him, I can't even bury him. And I want to ask you that, weren't you worried for your family? It did worry me so much. If there was one thing that would keep me awake at night, it was that, to think that they are insecure. My father is a former politician. I mean, didn't trust former politicians. He could be killed. So, yeah, be, being a refugee, sometimes when I see refugees being mistreated, I feel so bad. I feel it personally because no one gets up to run away from their family. It's circumstances. And uh, we should always respect and empathize with people who've escaped their homes. They don't leave for fun. When you fast forward, you again S your course. In fact, even enroll for a master's, this time in mechanical engineering. Mm, yeah. Again, doing the hard stuff. Gladly, 1979, the government falls in Uganda. And uh, yes, from what I gather, you returned to be a flight engineer in Uganda Airlines. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the different things happened. Mm -hmm. I did finish my aeronautical engineering degree. I was, yeah, one of the best students in class. And I got, I won a fellowship of Zonta International. It was called Amelia Earhart Fellowship. Mm -hmm. And it was the first black woman to win it. And it was a, a scholarship, it was a fellowship to do more research in, in aerospace technology. And there was a university ready to take Absolutely. me in America, but I left it all. I abandoned and decided to come back home because at that time there was a growing movement to resist dictatorship in Uganda. Don't forget Amin had fallen and there was an opportunity to democratize, but it was hijacked and the old dictator 
entrenched himself back in power. I'm talking about Milton Obote yes. with the support of the Tanzanians. Now that drove me mad. I felt this can't happen again back to another dictator. This time you're becoming very politically cautious yes. and in fact mm. ferocious, not just conscious. <laughs> I don't know about ferocious. What <laughs> was it the incident around you fleeing the country that now got got you to become no. so aware no, 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 of I the was... passage of time? When you were hobnobbing with the revolutionary students uh, in the UK and things were changing around that time that just made you want to go at it? No, I've been politically active since I was very young. Mm -hmm. Remember, I grew up in a political household. Oh, yes. My father was an opposition member of parliament at a time when Uganda was becoming more and more dictatorial, the leadership. There was Prime Minister Obote, who overthrew the constitution, mm -hmm. became president of Bote, banned the opposition, brought in a very treason act, detention act that bullied the opposition silence. My father was left the only opposition leader in the whole of the South, starting at Karuma. So my home was a home where people who were being oppressed, oppressed came, ran to my father. He was the only MP in the whole of the South. So I grew up seeing a uh, our leader, my father, resisting a dictatorship, and my mother too. Even when Amin came, my father would speak to the Amin regime fearlessly. So I grew up knowing that you don't accept. You don't accept repression, but you, you resist within the means that you have. Mm -hmm. So when this period came for parties to return, I was active in DP. I was active in DP. I campaigned for Sam Kutesa in Yabshozi. We actually defeated Museveni. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I campaigned for uh, candidates in Buganda. So you in, returned? In Busoga. Abandoning your scholarship to come no, and get... No, 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 no. Yeah. That was during my vacation. Uh -huh. But when the election was rigged of 1980, 80, yes. and I was also finishing my degree, then instead of going for a PhD, mm -hmm. I returned. And that's when I joined Uganda Airlines oh. to work, but also to support the revolution. Because now young people were organizing, had gone to the bush. I was in contact with them and I was ready also to go into the bush and join them. But so that we end dictatorship, we bring about democracy, we end human rights violations. We build a new nation. You eventually actually got to the bush. Indeed. Yeah, I did, I did. Let's play your next song, Winnie. When we return, then you will take us through the chronicles of how a brilliant lady with an incredible two degrees from the UK comes to their godforsaken country at that time and then goes to the bush to fight. My next song is a song by Edith Piaf, who's a French woman, and it's called no, je ne regrette rien. No, I regret nothing. As about ask, qu'est-ce que c'est? <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful song. Why do you choose that particular song? Well, Again, it, it's written in black and white, but I would love to hear it from you. It captures my own attitude <laughs> in life. I mean, I've done many things and uh, I've had my highs and lows. I've fallen and got up again, but I always say I regret nothing because in everything 
I mean well, I might make a mistake, but I will learn from it and I will move on. So no, je ne regrette rien captures what has been my attitude always, that when you fall, don't stay there, get up, brush yourself, learn the lesson and move on. Folks, please note that uh, the Honorable Winnie Vianyuma here was Uganda's ambassador to France for some time in her career. So clearly she knows a bit about French culture, music, and now with the song that resonates with her attitude, believe you me, it was a daunting task finding it, but here we have it. We'll be right back. Mes chagrins, mes plaisirs, je n'ai plus besoin de balayer les amours avec leur trémolo, balayer pour toujours, je repars à zéro. I wouldn't lie to you that I understand every word that was pronounced, but the vibe of the song and with what you translated it to mean, clearly I now understand why you like it. And then I saw the reaction it gave you. You were in another cloud altogether. <laughs> Do you actually ever dance? Yeah. We've seen pictures of you dancing and yes, clearly you have... Uh, a left and right foot. Many of us have two left feet. Is that right? <laughs> oh, <laughs> you're too kind. To you're too kind. I like dancing. I really do. I wish I had enough time. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's plenty of space on the table, at least anywhere you can dance. And this is capital. <laughs> we'll do it all. Yeah. Really, you then, from the 1980 election, realized that, okay, even then. No, there was a problem in this country. Mm-hmm. A serious one. We had a... Uh, we had and maybe still have an elite kind of politics where people who have had the opportunity to go to school to get some qualifications dominate the political space at that time to be to have some role in the political decision making Mm -hmm. you needed to find your way to a political party there was a dp and a upc and then within that party, there were gatekeepers. They would choose who can be a candidate, who can't be. And there were few positions of leadership to compete for. And there was contestation at the top between those two parties. Mm-hmm. There were no voices at the grassroots. There was no role for people. We had a, a system of chiefs who were appointed, who would run communities with power from above. And let's not forget. All of these predominantly were male. Yes, exactly. They were male, and the gatekeepers 
allowed in men with money, men with papers and with money. Ordinary men, young men, were not part of any political discussions. Women, even with papers, both academic and monetary, uh, also were nowhere. Yes. So really, to break that system and create an empowering one, inclusive one, where you didn't have to be educated, to serve in a local government, mm -hmm. you could be, you, you include women, you include young people, you include people with This vision of empowering people to take their futures in their hands was so attractive for mm -hmm. me. And I felt it was the most important thing to do at that time, and that other things like research could come later. Or even earning some good bucks from uh, a career of aeronautic engineering. Yeah. No. no, I've never been really incentivized by making a lot of money. As long as I have enough to eat and wear and uh, And you can only have three meals a day anyway, so. Yeah. <laughs> that, that route never attracted me. Wow. Mm. But you gave all this up and went to the bush, the discomfort and the uncertainty of return. When you say I give all this stuff, it's, you make it appear like I had a lot. Well, you I, was just a young, I was just a young woman. I was only 22 or so. I, I owned, no I I owned nothing. <laughs> I didn't have a house. I didn't have, I think I had a wretched little, battered little car. Uh -huh. I, mean, I wasn't leaving much. I was just a, a young, idealistic person with visions of an equal, a just a prosperous country, and ready to die for my views. Remember, I was raised by activists. My dad used to get arrested now and again. And when he'd come home, there would be relatives saying, but you, man, why do you risk yourself? You've got kids, you've got this. Why, why do you risk? And he always said, you know what? Justice is a cause worth dying for. I don't mind. If I go, these kids will, will grow. The world will take care of them. Of he course. didn't. He didn't fear to risk for justice, so and and I, I, I felt the same. But I wasn't leaving anything. Now, don't think that. Don't imagine I had a, a mansion I was leaving or a fat salary. Yeah, no. But, but I'm now imagine where you <laughs> went, the bush. Yeah, that Clearly. one. There were people there also. Uh -huh, people, but mm. then again, what, what what was your reaction to the situation you found in there? in terms of even the basic level of minimum comfort for a woman. Let's even start from there. And I'm not trying to be uh, chauvinistic in any sense. But to begin with, I had a, I had a very idealistic, huh? uh, I was a very idealistic person. I had read a lot of books and literature about revolution and what it, and uh, why a revolution, and how a revolution, and when you win, how to take the revolution forward. So you had pictures of Che Guevara somewhere, maybe in your past, and you know you idealize people like those. Well, I had been shaped by reading, yes, Che Guevara mm. among others, mm -hmm. and for this I always give credit to to President Seven, mm. then a, a leader of the revolution. He introduced me to a lot of texts. He bought me books. I bought some myself. I read about how oppressed people around the world, from China to Vietnam to Nicaragua, to 
to uh, even the civil rights movement in America, in America to yes. Mozambique and Angola and, and I read South Africa and all. Yes. So I read about how oppressed people come together and uh, change their circumstances. And I was ready to be part of a revolution. So when I arrived, I was so eager to learn from the movement. And I was aware that I was coming from a different class position, from being a middle-class urban woman with uh, education to working with peasants at the grassroots, mm -hmm. many who had had hardly any education, but who had uh, their knowledge of how life is lived at the base. Wow. So that's also important knowledge, to, exactly, live, yeah. to be with people whose whole life is shaped by living a subsistent life. So it was really uh, being part of getting rid of my own bias, class biases and respecting the knowledge and the abilities of people from the peasantry. It was exciting and rather painful also because some of the assumptions you have, you quickly have to drop. Exactly. Mm. But war is war. There's death, there's destruction, there's everything in between. Yeah. At some point, did you feel like, <clears throat> maybe let me quit this? Because again, there seemed not to be a bright future in sight. Or no, were you never. the optimistic winner that you have always been? Never, never, never. What? You know, it's like a one-way ticket you take. Um, it, at least no, for no, me, no I, yeah, what I kept hoping for is that I am alive when we win the revolution, but that I should ever turn my back on it? No never. way, no way. Just thought, I just hope we win it. I hope we don't get major setbacks and then we fail to win and anything happens to me. No, but I was determined that we see the end of the revolution. I was lucky too, because to be honest, Many people died. Mm. Even even a few days before we won, there were Some people dying. dying. Yeah. And even shortly after you have come to die. Yeah, we're dying just a few days after. Oh, shame. So, yeah. Long and short, I mean, yes, then we know that this government that came to power in 1986, unlike others in the past, began then to put in place phenomena that we hadn't seen the emancipation of women being one of those. Mm -hmm. Then we saw ladies like you taking pole positions in the governance structure. We saw cabinet ministers. You became uh, our ambassador to you know, France. We saw the growth of a movement that was away from uh, the usual political stability. Now we're looking at you know, the people that were previously marginalized, special interest groups, youth, people with disabilities, but also especially women. Could it have been a deliberate tokenism of sorts from the government? Or was there some kind of um, internal quest for this recognition to come to the fore? Well, that's an important question. And I want to answer it um, for the, especially for the women who may be listening to this program, but it's also the men. Of of and I'll tell you why. Because 
women in Uganda need to understand that the empowerment of women came out of the contributions of women and the struggles of women. Because sometimes it like to think that it was handed to them by a progressive leadership of the NRM. Not quite, mm -hmm. not quite. I was not in the bush during the first days. I was outside supporting from what was called the clandestine. Mm. But inside the bush, what was happening, especially in the more, in those stages where the guerrillas were very mobile <coughs> and <coughs> were fighting with the government troops, they were, one, women were playing very critical roles. They were sustaining injuries, for example. <coughs> when they would sustain, when they would have casualties, they would need somewhere to put those combatants to be nursed, to heal, and then to return to the guerrilla. Where would they leave them? They would live in the homes of, of supporters of the struggle peasants, and it would be the woman feeding, nursing, taking care. They were not going to hospitals. So that's one role. A pivotal they were playing role. pivotal role of taking care of combatants who were injured. Then there was a need to gather information, reconnaissance. Mm -hmm. They would want to know what's happening. The enemy has camped over there. What are their plans? What do they want to do? Who did they send many times? A woman carrying her basket, pretending to be selling charcoal or selling Fruits, uh, vegetables or alcohol. alcohol around the enemy camp is the least one, is the last one you suspect. Mm -hmm. But she can sell the alcohol and listen to them talking and know what they are up to and know who is there and come back and bring information. Women were involved in reconnaissance. Some of them did very, very dangerous missions. There were some women who actually walked miles from deep in Luero, came into the city, and even removed eh, and buried a body of a commander who had been captured and killed. But secret mission to do that. Others went on secret missions to liberate combatants who were in prisons as far as Karamoja. Ooh. Yes, to go, have a plan, and be able to rescue a high-target prisoner in a prison as far as Karamoja and escort them into the bush in Luero. Winnie, do you have some of these chronicles written down? You should. Well, I'm sure some people write these things. Uh, I'm telling <clears throat> you the kinds of roles women play. Mm -hmm. Women also, when it came to mobilizing communities in the, in the zones that were now under the control of the NRA, mm -hmm. NRM, were now part of mobilizing and convincing peasants on the importance of the struggle. Hmm? Remember, every time they move in a new area, they have to convince peasants. It was a peasant war. Mm -hmm. Women proved able to convince people to support the guerrilla. True. Food, running out of food. NRM, NRA guerrillas could 
consume all the food in an area and it's finished. Hmm? And get the bottles still ready. And, and they have to keep moving further and further and even start looking for food Beyond across enemy, enemy lines. lines. <laughs> Who goes there? Behind a, enemy lines, of course. a woman with her basket of cassava. She would just say, I'm just going to feed my, my kids. Children. I'm not in the guerrilla. I'm not a guerrilla. So they could bring food from long distances to feed the combatants. The combatant. So I'm giving you some. So out of all of this, the progressive leaders of the NRM saw the importance of giving women a voice in the decision making so that they can shape the struggle. They were already contributing. So when they started committees, RSCs, they said, let at least one post be for a woman. That is where it started. Now, affirmative action. Affirmative action. Now, the rest of the story, you know, mm. when we took the country, we spread the whole RSC system, the seat for women was there, then more and more and more until we got one third and all that. But the starting point is that, that women were not just sitting there and some men out of kindness offered affirmative action. Women rose and it was peasant women. Huh? So when I see often elite women at the top saying, me a movement because the movement empowered us, I want to tell them, stop you there. The you were empowered by peasant women. It is they who struggled, who contributed, risked their lives, even died in the struggle, who demonstrated the importance of women in building their country, in leading their country. And now you are a beneficiary of those. Don't look at the men and make them... Feel like the benevolently gave it to Yes. You. They did what was right because they saw the contributions of women and used women's skills and loyalty and visions to win the war. When you eventually get very much knee-deep into the local politics, and in 1994, you contested to be one of the Constituent Assembly delegates, you know, a, a, a fit that you won, and you are in there for the constitution-making uh, process, and in there, the Ugandan constitution is fitted to be one of those that recognizes, indeed, the pivotal role that women, just like any other citizen of a country, play. Take us back, and in just about two minutes, in your experience during the constituency, the constitution-making process, in regard to clauses that spoke to the women folk and the movement to emancipate them fully. Did you get some kind of resistance from chauvinism, from women? Did you get some kind of drawback from fellow women saying, ah, but I think you're pushing the back a bit too high? What was the experience like? In making the constitution, exactly. I had the privilege of being the leader of the Women's Caucus mm -hmm. in the Constituent Assembly. And we were 51 women, and the house had about 276 people, so a minority. But we were supported. We were supported by the women's movement out there. Women had gotten up and mobilized and got provisions there in the draft. Mm -hmm. We were supported by the Ministry of Gender, women in academia, 
every woman activist was watching us, supporting us, helping us to get things done. So as a leader of this caucus, uh, my first sense was that we can't take anything for granted. Mm -hmm. These things that are in the draft, we can win them or we can lose them. We need to win over a big number of men on our side. So I embarked on getting support to train us. Most of us had never no, been legislators. Been yeah. So we got a lot of support. We did a lot of training. We used to spend weekends learning, learning how to lobby, learning how to draft uh, provisions, learning how to deal with resistance, learning how to speak in the media and persuade. Wait, all that some stuff. of the stuff we thought came natural to you and all. Well, I'm glad that there was quite a bit no, of... No, there's always learning, always mm. learning. I'm always learning. Even now, I, c I could be a better communicator than I am today. If I stop learning, I stop living. Well, so, so <laughs> we, I hear you. We, we learned a lot. Then we struck alliances. We made an alliance with youth, MP youth delegates, mm -hmm. disability delegates, workers delegates. We all now spoke with one voice. We learned how to articulate the issues of the disabled, of the workers, of the youth, so that we can move together. Wow. Yeah, then we, we did a lot of stuff. And uh, in the end, we even added more that was not in the draft. And there was resistance, I can tell you. I can imagine. I remember there was, yeah, we, we negotiated hard to get the one third seats in local government. Mm -hmm. It was my idea. I brought it to the caucus. And I do remember some women saying, ah, are we going to get this one? Oh, and I said, well, <laughs> we can only lose. And we will, if, if we lose, well, we've lost. But we, we have to try. And we timed it so well that this chapter on local government, when it came, was also the time we were debating decentralization or federal. And there were these Baganda who wanted their federal. They were like 72 people block. And then there was a movement wanting decentralization. So I organized for us to go to meet President Museveni at his home in Wajtura. Mm -hmm. He was sitting there watching, but he was also influencing the movement caucus. Ah. Remember, he was the chairman of the movement. So we went to him with, with members of the caucus, and we said to him, now, Mr. President, for us, we, we can support uh, decentralization we are not against but would you also agree that in that decentralization we have one third of all seats for women uh. he, he looked up he looked down <laughs> <laughs> and he said hmm, i don't see a problem with that have you raised it in the in the nrm caucus he said no we are starting with, with you the chairperson would you support it and uh, so we went, and then there were also some Baganda women mm -hmm. in our women's caucus who were also sitting there and showing him that, you know, by the way. For us, we are not for federal. If. Uh, uh, federal is also there, but if we get a third. <laughs> then we'll go with centralization. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't put it that way, but there was a sense that the whole caucus Was would be excited man. about the one third and that we could move. The, the numbers towards the numbers we need for decentralization. And that's how it happened, because then when we went to the movement caucus, 
he was clearly on our side. And it was easy to get all the other movement people to bring, to allow us to introduce a new provision, asking for one third, and we got it. So yeah, why am I, I'm going into all this to say that some things were tough. It was very hard to talk about um, sexual reproductive rights. Hmm? Sexual reproductive health and rights was a difficult one. It still the, is difficult today. The, yeah, the issue of ownership of property between a man today. and his wife was tough. We fought a lot on that. Yeah, there, there are real battles about with the patriarchy. We have not, we have not won it. We mm -hmm. have to keep fighting. Winnie, your illustrious career in Ugandan politics and all that, and then your first presence in parliament after the CA mm. delegates conference, you become a member of parliament representing your local constituency of Mbarara municipality. That, no doubt, sterling performance. But here it is. In July 1999, if my memory serves me right, you get married. Mm. Huh, yeah. major milestone, I think. Yeah, it was. So now here you are, active in politics, family comes in, and usually that is where the actually seal normally is found. Balancing between your responsibilities as a mother, as a wife, in Pumbara Municipal, which is a cosmopolitan area and the like. Take us through how you are juggling the balls in the air. Ah, you know, you said many things there. Um, yeah, I married uh, my long-term com companion whom I'd been living with for almost 10 years or so. Um, honestly, I didn't marry him. I just got the piece of paper. We're already, <laughs> already married, really. We're living together. On, on this program, I'm a bit naughty. And uh, of course, knowing that I'm dealing with an executive director of the UNAIDS, you know, I don't want to, you know, uh, you know, bastardize your position by saying, but tell me, what's track, you know, like how people fall in love and they're like, and you normally ask those questions to my guests. Yeah. If you're at liberty to do so, tell us. But I want to believe that it must have been uh, natural to make that choice of you. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's an outstanding man. He, we had been together in the struggle mm. and I had known him as a comrade and I admired him. He was selfless, he was brave, he was a very discreet person, very disciplined. I liked him as a comrade but honestly I fell in love with him when, when, uh, by, when an accident happened. Mm. Yes, a comrade and friend of both of us had a major accident on Kampala Masaka Road oh and uh, broke his spine. And he was rushed. There were, the health services were so bad then uh, when we were coming out of the bush. And to save his life, he was rushed to, he was put on a plane to be taken to England for immediate surgery, trying to save his spine his spine so on the way he got worse and the plane had to do an emergency landing in paris and i was now working in paris as a diplomat mm -hmm. so he was i was informed i was the acting ambassador that a patient had been flown in a commander he was major victor buana so i rushed to see him he was at a hospital near the airport and then he ended up staying 
in hospital in France for the next seven months. Ooh. Yes. It's a long story, but they were never able to restore his spine. Then he had to go into rehabilitation. Then many other things happened. He had a little baby who died and uh, had to be flown back to Uganda for burial. Oh, dear. So this whole journey of seven months, huh? Besige, just, I fell in love with him because the kind of loyalty he showed to his friend, the care he put in for him, because remember, we're still fighting oh, the was war. Was he on the plane with him? When no, he wasn't. So he was carrying telephonically from Kampala. Yes, and he bought himself tickets and flew to Paris to see him, to find out what his needs were. He, he had, you know how the system just goes on. Mm -hmm. We were still trying to, the whole country was not completely out of war. War was still going on in the yes, north. Yes, in the north and northeast. The attention was on uh, on uh, recovering the country, pacifying the economy the, and eco all that. Yeah, and he was being forgotten. But it was this man who would come, see him, go back, check in every military office in the bureaucracy to make sure that his money comes. His family is well taken care of. His family is taken care of. This man eventually died. He took care of his family making sure that his little assets go to help educate his children. I mean, to me, I was just, these are the things that move me. And uh, I just fell for him because I saw humanity in him. I saw loyalty, uh, honesty, faithfulness. These are the things that attract, I'm not attracted to just Physical, physical beauty. Uh -huh. Actually, I t I've always tended to like uh, rough, <laughs> rough looking <laughs> men, men, not really handsome types. But uh, it is the heart. I fall, I fall in love with the heart and the mind. Yeah. Wow. So that's how I, that's how we got together, it, because we were both caring for somebody who was vulnerable, was in a difficult situation, who needed people to follow his, he was in a foreign country, mm -hmm. he needed, so I worked with him to support this man and his family and uh, everything happened after that. I, I like the part of you, you, you fall in love with <laughs> rough man. When I have an opportunity to interview him, which I will, I'm sure one yeah. of these days, I ask him what it is about you that you fell in love with. <laughs> yeah, well, he can tell you, he never told me, maybe he'll tell you. Well, I'm sure you also never told him this that you've just told me, so I'm sure he's somewhere listening. Yeah, I don't and now think I've ever up. told him. <laughs> I don't think so. Wow. Then long and short, your wonderful son is born. Answer. Now, that changes the ball game for you. You are here in politics. You have a young son just born. Your both parents are active state duties. How was that, you raising that son? Oh, it was the best gift God gave me, <laughs> my son. And he changed my life, really. The first people to tell me that I changed were the... The staff who worked for Forum for Women in Democracy. Uh -huh. Because I was an NGO leader, mm -hmm. I was a member of parliament, and I was now a mom. And uh, I tend to be, I'm very driven, I'm very ambitious, I want the best results, uh, I want excellence. And so, and uh, I don't give myself 
a pass and I don't give it to others. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's quite something. Yeah. So I was tough. I was tough on the staff to deliver to the best because I also support them. Now, when I had a baby, it changes your world. You suddenly, soft and in places you uh, were not previously soft. Suddenly, I mean, suddenly it's okay that the toys are spread out in the whole house, that uh, the tablecloth has been pulled off the table. <laughs> that Before everything was in its place. If that's yeah. supposed to be the remote stand, yeah. that's where it is. If this is supposed to be the yeah. jar holder. That is wow. messed up here and it is smelling. It's all okay. So somehow the staff said, we're experiencing you differently, Winnie. You're not tough on deadlines. You're not, <laughs> you're, you you're not keeping it, us in your office. Maybe can run a temperature in the middle of the night. <laughs> yes. And they're going home early. I'm not, because I could stay in the office working up to midnight. Oh. Yeah. Now, five o'clock. Mm. Gotta see my baby. So it changed me. It uh, introduced a balance in my life. I started to be more conscious of work and family and uh, and i mean there is also such joy what you get out of a child you cannot describe it's uh, it's unconditional love it's fun so yeah he changed my life he's now a 22 year old man and he still really gives me joy Every day is a learning and bonding experience for the two of you. Yeah. Now, of course, we are going through the 21 years, 22 years you've spent with him. One image of him still strikes memorably in my mind as a young budding journalist. There was a time in 2000, and 2000 2001, mm -hmm. you were in the middle of a campaign. You and your husband, your husband has decided to fall out with his compatriot and contest against him for the presidency. And there's a rally in Nachifubo. I think they're about downtown Kampala. You went with a little boy called Azim. I think he was how old then? Four, three years. He was just beginning to speak. And at the podium, you gave him the microphone to greet the supporters. Meaning, why were you taking a little boy to work? No, I wasn't taking him to work. <laughs> and I never, uh, it was the only time I'd have never put him on a platform again. But there was a special reason. Tell us. That was a very traumatic campaign. When we decided to break with the National Resistance Movement and challenge President Museveni as a candidate in the presidential election, it traumatized the country. It was unexpected. We were one movement, now suddenly we broke away. There was a lot of violence in that election. People were killed, people fled, eventually my husband fled. But in that campaign, the other side, some people on uh, President Seveni's team sent a rumor around that my son Anselm had died in Nairobi and that because we were so ambitious for power, we had put him in a fridge and he was in a fridge somewhere in Nairobi waiting for the election to end, and then we would bury him. Hmm? It was m intended to make us look like we are such heartless, heartless power-hungry people. I, it was so painful, but also we could manage. Eh? So we, we, we didn't respond to it. It takes people with a kind of... Uh, yeah, but then <laughs> I chose one good moment. Mm -hmm 
tu atabigrale to do like in lion king that moment where well to just say awesome <laughs> say hello to everybody just as a way to say well here he is he's alive i never wanted even to respond and say this is a vicious lie no but i just wanted his appearance and his own voice to 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 deal that and ugly how we loved that moment yeah. in the press so that's all i did but i'd never asked him he clearly speak. was his father's son and uh mother's son <laughs> yeah because <laughs> when he spoke he yeah. really spoke so just said greet the people because then they would see a picture of him he's just a little boy there was no need to drag him in the campaign there was no need to declare him dead and yeah so without saying anything about that horrible story he 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 answered them when your story your life story and how you are sharing it with us is keeping my toes like card you know and usually that's the moment you want to play a song and then an episode comes up and i just have to let the song slide into the next minute but just before you play your next song winnie and looking at ansam's growth and development as a child of a politician in the kind of polity that your husband and your family has gone through the many elections you've contested in and whatever has come out of it do you think it has had uh, an effect on how his growth and development has been and his perception of certain things especially his own country well uh yes first that i was not able to raise him here mm -hmm. that hurts me i wish i had but i couldn't like around that time that's when i left the country because i realized that i could stay here fighting for my vision of uganda working with people to try to make it democratic and just and peaceful but i'd lose a son mm -hmm. he was really being impacted after that election i was in and out of court there was a time i had Simon I found you at Ginger Road police station yeah. I've been arrested for possession of a gun. Exactly. I've been around with you. I've been around you quite a lot you of times. <laughs> I had six cases at one point in time running in four different courts. I had 11 wonderful pro bono lawyers helping me to fight the cases. I was in and out of police stations and my son started thinking that I work in a court. <laughs> one, one morning he said, "Oh mom, you're going to work." Mark. I said, "Yes. We are going to the court." He said, "No, I don't work in court. I work in oh. parliament." So he was traumatized. Whenever I'd see a policeman, he would he would be scared that they are coming to take me. So I left politics in Uganda. I wanted to save my son and I wanted to be more useful. I felt as if the polarization wasn't allowing me to really move a development and human rights agenda people were isolated from me they was terrified of challenging the regime so i went into development those so, who were uncles to the boy stopped coming home because again nobody <laughs> people were not coming mm. at home i i would sit in my home by myself and nobody because we were surrounded huh? there were people around our house noting anybody coming in so all that but so i missed raising him here but i have to say i was very lucky because all the countries where i've lived i was always able to find a good community to live in a good school for him to go to 
and for him to grow up a good and uh, decent young man. But it, he doesn't really have a Ugandan community that he connects with except a few relatives. And that's something I would have wanted him to have. To have a few local friends and all Absolutely. That. But he has very few Ugandan friends. But he compensates. He has so many friends, African friends from all over Africa. He has American friends. He has Asian friends. He's a global guy. And uh, he's done well, I thank God. One, again, just to remind you of a few moments where I have again met with you. I know you don't remember some mm. of these things. You are coming back from exile in that November of 2005. You coming from Addis, your husband coming from South Africa. Mm. And then we meet at Joma Kenyatta International Airport. <laughs> and you'd be surprised what he asked me when he saw me in the morning. Mm. Simon, because he was expecting me. Mm. Have you seen Winnie and Ansel? Already? Asked me that. And then wow. I put him on radio. What will be your next song? My That's next supposed to be a cue that dedicated them a song. Eh? <laughs> My next song has to be Mpalaf by oh. Palasso. <laughs> did I guess the moment right or did I just trigger you in the right spot? <laughs> well, you got me in the right spot. Mpalaf. I still live because I am loved by my son, by my husband, by my siblings. And it's a love of family, really, that keeps me going and I don't take it for granted. It's, uh, it's there and it keeps me going. We'll play 10 seconds of that song because again, we're going to keep winning here for a long time. Yeah, yeah, I love. <laughs> FM with Simon Cassiate.
What a beautiful song. Yeah, when it plays, wherever it is that you are, the world stops. You get groovy. Completely. You who have not had the pleasure of watching Winnie live in the studio, <laughs> you don't know what you missed. <laughs> well, also, this is patented moves. <laughs> Winnie, <laughs> you're too much. Now, you then begin your work outside your country. Mm. It's development work, yes. It's impacting a greater scope of humanity, yes. But you're not at home. Yes, you're serving the continent of Africa. You're serving the globe. Mm. You're raising through. You are the African Union. Then you now go to, long and short, you find yourself at Oxfam. You've got the United Nations, mm. then Oxfam, and now back to the United Nations. Mm. Without going into the minute-by-minute you know, expression of what you have been able to achieve there. Mm. How would you say roundly your tour of duty has been until the current position? Yeah, I've served in different roles, but there is one common thread, if I can call it a golden thread mm -hmm. through all these roles I've had. I really thank God for have, having given me those opportunities. They are all platforms to advance social justice gender justice, mm -hmm. that always I'm looking for the next opportunity to make a difference in the world, to move the world towards more justice, so more equality. So when I went to the African Union, I started their, their gender directorate. I was their first director to construct it and staff it. Then I went to the UNDP again to be their director for gender and development, mm -hmm. to lift their work. They were not doing well mm -hmm. on addressing women's rights around the world. Then to Oxfam, social and economic justice issues, all that, every opportunity was a chance to work with brilliant people, design programs, campaigns, policies that will take the world to a better place. Mm -hmm. And always it's about working with people to find their own solutions. You put your resources there, you put your the data you gather, the evidence you have, you put it there and you let people drive and you, you kind of drive in the back seat, you're in the back seat supporting but you are in it with them. That's leadership, yeah, leading so, from the back and pushing forward. Yeah, so I've, I've, I've been very, very blessed in that sense. But even then, you didn't leave part of the work that you started back home. For example, you did mention the Forum for Women in Development for mm, ODE, mm. and how now it's 27 years since you are part of the founding you know, outfit and this incredible work they have done over the years. Looking back, and gladly you have not let them down, there's quite a lot that they have achieved, but there's also quite a lot that continues to elude them. When you look back, driving mirror in the side of you, and you're speaking to the members of Forward and Ugandan women, what would you say to them today, 27 years after they were founded? Yeah, this is a Forum for Women Democracy. We founded it after the CA to fill a space in the women's movement. We're seeing that now thousands of women are going to walk out of kitchens and become political leaders in local governments, in parliaments. After getting you one third in local governments. Yes. <laughs> and we were saying, 
how will they move from being private people, raising their children, maybe teaching in a classroom, to now being a counselor, passing budgets, making bylaws? Who's going to accompany them? We created the organization to do that. Mm -hmm. And boy, they have done it. I mean, I, I founded it with seven other women were eight. After six years, we handed it over. Remember, we gave it the name Democracy, mm -hmm. Forum for Women in Democracy. We're part of deepening the democracy, making it more inclusive, making it more transparent. That's the vision, and women being at the heart. So we had to hand over when our time came. This thing of Sanja is not there in Forum for Women Democracy. Uh -huh. If no. it's this time, you serve it yes, and you go Because it's what, it's our brand, it is at... It's your conveyor belt. Yeah, it's our DNA. To build the next woman, to be inclusive, to hand power over, to share power. So they've done this. And you know they are nonpartisan. When we started it, I, we were all movement, it was all movement. Then no we either. broke away. I went to Reform Agenda, I went to FDC. But still in that group of women, you find there NRM, FDC, no, no party, those who, are, who hate parties. <laughs> it's just about women's rights and women having a say in all decision-making, government decision-making, corporate decision-making, family decision-making, community, it's about that. And they've done an amazing job, always within the broader women's rights movement, never doing it alone. They work with women lawyers, they work with UNET, they work with women doctors, women agriculturalists. So it's about pulling together and taking forward our women's rights agenda. So what I would say to them today, to the women there who are active, fighting for the rights of the woman and the girl is that we are in, we've had a, a jolly good ride. We have end. to call it a jolly good ride. Because mm. remember, we started this organization just after the CA. Uganda was post-conflict. Uganda was on a path of empowering people and the whole world was behind us, supporting mm. us. Mm broken country reconstructing there was a lot of support from the international community mm -hmm. uganda has grown now we are almost lower middle income all these people who are putting money on us are now saying oh welcome Look. to the world of middle income you, you can, can take care of take yourself, yourself. Yeah. so we've got to find a way to sustain our work for advancing women's rights paying for ourselves. Talking about sustainability, I see that somewhere in the theme for this year's Women's Day celebration. Yes. Which is gender equality today for a sustainable tomorrow. Exactly. We have to sustain our rights agenda, mm -hmm. paying for it with our own resources. So that's one. The second thing is we are also entering tough times post this, if we can even call it post, post this health crisis of COVID. True. It's hit us hard. It's taken us back in, in economic terms. Mm -hmm. We are not where the we GDP should growth should be. We've, we've been taking steps back. So the economy is tighter, but yet we must carry on 
pushing for the ordinary woman and the girl down there in the village for their life to improve, to get better health, to get better quality education, to finish secondary school, girls finish secondary school. We've got to make sure incomes increase so that families have more, they have enough food for their families. So all this means we have to be out there helping the government put their priorities to make the right choices, to cut where they should cut, like military spending, and put more on health, on education, on social protection, and to use money more frugally. So these things need us to step up our activism. Hmm? And that is not going to be easy in our current political climate. True. Where there's so much tension between government and opposition, and it's hard to find common ground. But we, as activists we, who carry a women's rights agenda, must find a way to engage with these polarized groups By to push our groups. issues forward. So it's a tougher, it's a tougher job for the next 25 years. Even tougher is the fact that I've been told you mm. are trying to put together a piece of infrastructure, the Imara Center. Yes. Which will require about 7.8 million US dollars. Yes. And that this center is supposed to serve so many things, including congregating women and showing that here we have a piece of infrastructure we can call our own. Yes, it is for the entire women's movement who want to build a center mm -hmm. to cost us almost $8 million. And I'm confident we can raise it because we have built the credibility that we can advance women's rights. Look, we have an Equal Opportunities Commission that came from us. Mm -hmm. We put it in the Constitution. We pushed for its enactment. It is now there. We pushed for government to budget with the views of women and men and their needs in mind, gender budgeting. It's now part of the national system of budgeting. That came from us. We've trained women. We've empowered them to come into office and be effective. These things have to continue. We're going to raise $8 million. We'll build a center. It will be a center for the whole women's movement and wow. even human rights movement. It will be a place to meet and do our work without having to pay to to, to beg for the next donor check. They are, they are not going to be there. Around, allow you to have a meeting, a to have a meeting. It will be a place where we can also celebrate our art and our culture. We don't have spaces for women artists, for example. We can have them hold their exhibitions there. They can be there in residence, wow. creating feminist art to inform the world. It will be a place for resting. We activists are always burning out. I know. <laughs> Without resting, yeah, you... <laughs> When we burn out, we have nowhere to exactly. go. This will be a place we can rest and, and, and uh, receive psychosocial support. It will be a place for training. It will be a place, place for learning, for researching, and all that. So we're building that. And we want everybody to come and put a tofali. We learned the tofali from, <laughs> from His Majesty, the Kabaka's programs. The tofali helped to rebuild 
the, the, the parliament of Buganda. Uh -huh. Now we can also use the same idea to build a women's center. So bring your tofali, any amount of money is valued and you will go into our record, into our golden book as having built it. It's about our ownership. We want to own the space and say we built it as ordinary women of Uganda. Others will give, but they are adding Onto what you already have to us. It's our home. Wow. It is no longer, we will no longer be saying we can't exist unless a donor gives us some money. No, we'll be there forever wow. as an institution for advancing women's rights. Moving away from that and now getting to know you a little more as we conclude the program. As it is, we've already overrun by almost 45 minutes, which is rare. But, I mean, yeah, no crime and that's not of your making. Uh, but just to know you a little more. Winnie, if I invited you to my house and I need to cook you your favorite dish, what should be on the menu? Eh, my God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 I'm an eater. I love food. Uh, what it's we hard. do here is we cook. <laughs> it's hard to say what I like. Anang, what do I like to eat? I like pinyewa. Mm -hmm. I like, uh, oh, my most favorite dish is malakwang. Wow. Do you know it? Of course. Malakwang. It beats every other dish in Uganda. Places, mm. And you start asking me questions about my life. Mm. you will understand that Malakwang is perhaps a staple in my household. Really? <laughs> but since I'm still the one sitting on this side, yeah. let's proceed with what you love. Malakwang. Malakwang. with what? Eaten with what? Matoke? It, no, eaten with kalo. Mm -hmm. It goes best with kalo. And uh, washed down with a Nile special. <laughs> That's an interesting one. Yeah. A nice special. Yes. I'll have that for dinner tonight. I must find it. I'm not for dinner tonight. Yeah. But Winnie, do you sometimes not crave a nice special when you are somewhere in Washington, e in Paris, in all these capitals I see you and in the Alps where hiking mountains and all that? I tell you, there's no beer like Nile Special. I love my Nile Special. You will pay for this advert, but coming in from the UN executive for your name in one note. Wow. Yeah, I do. I do. I like I, I like a nice cold beer mm -hmm. when it is hot, and uh, I love malakwang. Really, really, really. And you our, don't eat any meat. I eat meat, but my son has made me stop because he's a vegetarian. Oh so I, I do eat it a bit now and again, but when really, he's away, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, basically, because when he sees me looking at meat, he starts telling me how. I'm primitive, I am all these things, <laughs> like I, I am destroying the environment, <laughs> and I am, it makes me feel guilty about meat. Answer, yeah. please let mommy mm. eat her meat. <laughs> well, that said, mm. what gives you a good laugh, Winnie? A good laugh? A good laugh. Oh, I laugh a lot, I laugh at anything, I love, I love, I, li I like being around people who don't take themselves seriously. Mm. So there are no these airs around you, oh, executive director, uh, no, 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 the no, world no. stops. No, no, I don't really like titles. I'm uncomfortable with them. But um, I, I think that life should be fun. And um, there are many sad things going on around us, but to remind ourselves of the little things that make us laugh mm -hmm. is so important. Wow, incredible. Yeah. And I think a best joke is one you make on yourself, <laughs> not on other people. <laughs> 
what do you sometimes um, prefer to say about yourself that gets people laughing and even wondering why you would have to say that about you? Ah, I think being myself makes people laugh. Like, for example, if, uh, if I admit that um, I don't hear well all these British American accents, and I, I want them to speak more slowly for me to understand. Sometimes <laughs> it makes people uncomfortable, but it makes others laugh. Because <laughs> so when I saw you co-chairing the yeah. World Economic Forum in Davos, with all these accents and all that. I tell them to slow down. <laughs> slow down, I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> what mm. gives you from, what makes you angry, Winnie? Okay, away from injustice. Okay, what makes, yeah, injustice makes me angry. I uh, knew that was your natural response, but then I said, let's stay away from that and here next. Yeah, I get upset when people are rude. Mm -hmm. Especially when they use foul language. I don't think it's necessary. Foul language. I don't like it. I don't like it. And I must say so that, um, if I may say so here, the president sometimes uses foul language. And when he does, I think he lets down the whole of Uganda. You can be angry and state your mind that something displeases you without calling somebody a bad name, you know, calling someone a pig or something like that. It's not good. But now that you mention him, mm. he's a guy who grew up at your household. You know him from No, please don't go there. No, I just want to say, do you sometimes call him out when he makes some of the things? Yeah, like now I'm calling him out. I'm really no, saying no, to him, no. you're, you're the fountain of honor. Mm. Say things, that express your, your... Yeah, express your anger using a language that is you know, acceptable, respected, and don't, don't descend so low and use insulting Descent. language. We've mm -hmm. seen pictures of you on social media, trekking, climbing mountains, mm. you know, having a good time and all that. Is that now your favorite pastime, enjoying nature wherever you find it? Yeah, I love or to only, Or am I just lucky that whenever I go to my timeline, I find you in that? You know, in these legs, I think something went there. When you walk for seven years of primary school, every day you walk three miles, two and three miles back in the hot sun. I think something goes there. You because have a mileage I, like an old vintage. I'm telling you, I love to walk. I can walk miles and miles and miles in a day. Wow. I can walk 40 kilometers. I can walk. So I've, I've and I enjoy it. I love countryside. I like to see the country. So it's my main pastime. Wow. Yeah, walking and and uh, enjoying countryside. Winning, you are active on Twitter and many times not necessarily discussing UNAIDS issues or development mm. issues, the high, you know, nose above the water kind of stuff. Sometimes you actually teach people, they are called them out and then of course you also get all these rude engagements <laughs> that touch the core of your private life mm. and some are very denigrating and mm. some I, as a parent now I can't imagine how I would feel about some comments you say, say what I see about your son for example said about my child mm. when you're there with your keyboard I want to imagine what exactly does your face look like when you read certain 
these comments. And now social media is different from how it was before. Now people who would not merit anything or would never have seen you alive except in their dreams now can talk to you on the screen of your phone. Yeah. You find it intrusive, angering, and everything wrong. Actually, How is it freedom of expression? No, I don't get angry, but I get sad. I, I get sad and I wonder, why is there so much hate? I mean, my son might be going for... Um, fancy dress party and wear a dress. He likes to wear rings. He wears my blouses. He keeps his hair long. And th th this is way, what he finds fun. Why would it make someone so angry to abuse him, to call him bad names? It just beats me. Why are you angry? <laughs> what? Why are you so full of hate? What has he done to you? Yeah. When you let him be. So I feel sad. I feel as if such people are themselves troubled inside, have got to project their pain on someone they don't know. So I feel sorry for them. I feel they are hurt by something that I don't know. So I feel sorry for them. Then others, I see, have been messed up in their heads by. <laughs> religions, traditions, cultures, all this stuff all around us. That we wear around they, us. They, they haven't navigated to find themselves. So all this stuff that hits our ears from preachers, you have to internalize and you have to sort out what you want to believe, leave out what you don't want. Sometimes I think there are some people who don't have those navigation skills. So everything thrown at them somehow yeah, confuses them. So you get people reading to you Bible texts. Hey, I read the Bible too, and I also believe. But I, I, I believe in goodness. I believe in kindness. I, I believe love. in love. I don't believe in hating someone. I don't believe in killing someone, imprisoning someone. So, yeah, I feel sadness mainly. And uh, I come out to, the reason I come out to speak on some of the sensitive issues and um, is because I want a country where my son can feel he belongs. Great. Yeah, that's why I get in those debates. I want, I want him to be respected for who he is and uh, for him to be able to come home and enjoy himself. Winnie. Your career path of growth and development is clearly hitting a, well, 90 degrees, you know, trajectory and all. Where do we expect to see you win in the next 10 years? I don't know. Would you be the... I never know. Would you be the next Secretary General of the United Nations or is it not Tell okay you. to speak about ambitions in the UN? Tell you the <laughs> truth. Two, two, three years ago, I didn't know that I would be at UNAIDS. I usually don't know. I usually know what I'm doing now. Mm -hmm. But I don't usually know where I'm going to be next. So if, I, if anyone tells you where I'm going to be in five years' time, mm -mm, they're not, not telling you the truth. Not even on a ballot paper here? <laughs> Would you ever consider that? <laughs> to tell you that Ugandans often want me to get involved and to run for president. And I always tell them that thank you for the trust you have in me. It is something that I can do, I know. I could give it my best shot and I could probably do a 
a decent job, a good job. But as it is a president, a, not as a contestant. As a president, mm -hmm. I can do the job. I've been tested enough times now. I know I can do the job. Mm -hmm. But it's always about teams. You go to lead with a team. You must create a team and go and lead with them. Mm, and that's not close to you. You can create a team. Yeah, but I'm not there yet. I'm now doing a job fighting HIV AIDS. Not there yet is the word. You know, at the end of the day, I remain a journalist. Eh? I'll contest, <laughs> I will contest the presidency, but not yet. Those are your words. <laughs> right now, I'm fighting <laughs> HIV AIDS. And I'm so happy and, and I feel honored to be in this role, wow. fighting HIV AIDS, supporting the Secretary General as his Under Secretary General. This is really, really so important, so privileged a position that I can't be now so thinking, mm -hmm. what's the next one? That's ridiculous. I'm not thinking about the next thing. The final question, really, nobody escapes is when they sit on that chair. Mm. That will be the last question from my end. This is a beautiful country, and you just admitted that you love the countryside. So Uganda, when you close your eyes and travel its breadth and width, mm. where in this country would you love to get marooned and just enjoy your moment, and why? Uh -huh. Where? Well, to live there, or just no, no, to be no, there to for be a few? There, you know, for a moment, to let your hair down. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, not Ruakabengo, not Ruti. No. Now choose any other place. <laughs> you know, for me, the most beautiful spot in Uganda, mm -hmm. and if I, had a, if I had money, I'd even go and buy a piece of, of land there and just stay there and sit and write books and reflect and... It is Bunyarguru. Wow. That's Rubirizi district. Bunyarguru. What do they call the it Western now? On the Western Rift Valley. It's Rubirizi district. Yes. It's the most beautiful for me part of With this Kreta country. And... Yes. Do you know that you can, if you, that in Bunyarguru there are about 250 crater lakes mm -hmm. and that you can actually have a crater lake in your compound, literally. Mm -hmm. You know? But I'm here, if you had money, there are these perfectly <laughs> little cones uh, with water in them, or sometimes they've just got grass in them. But they're so one beautiful. It's shaped like Africa. Just yeah, there was of, one that's shaped uh, like Africa. Between ones. Yeah, a friend of mine, uh, Father Ben Birunji, is from Bunyarguru and lives near a crater lake. He has invited me to his house and then. The, you know, the people there like to eat fish. They call it emfe. <laughs> and they have roasted fish right in front of this crater lake. To me, that's the closest to heaven. Wow. To, to, to grill a fish by a right crater there. lake. And wash it down with the coronal special. Nile special, of course. <laughs> we need you, my executive director, UNAIDS, also Undersecretary General of the United Nations, an accomplished Ugandan politician, but a global citizen. A mother, a wife, and everything in between. We can't thank you more for being a part of this program tonight. You have illuminated the studio. And yes, 
we also allowed you to take the privilege of sitting exactly where you sat as a member of the Unojiro Capital Gang, right there. Welcome back to your original seat. Thank you so much. <laughs> and you were telling us earlier, please, as you conclude, so who sat next to you that time? Who do you remember was sitting next to you? Uh, Charles Obo, mm -hmm. and then Frank, of Frank course, and, would be and, here. Uh, and Patrick, Patrick Kwako would, would be, be there. sitting there mm -hmm. and would be raising hell on a Saturday and morning. And the guests normally would sit right here. Right there. You remembered when they let John Garang sat here. There were lots and of people sat there. Lots <laughs> of people sat there and some of them never wanted to come back. Especially right opposite you as <laughs> For you, our listeners, wherever it is that you're listening from, we can't thank you more. You could have been anywhere doing anything, but you have stayed with us for the last two hours. We can't thank you more. But one thing Winnie has got to do before she exists is leave us with an incredible song to say Kwaheri to us. What would that song be, Winnie? I think it's going to have to be... Neri Tupateke. Hmm? By Fadili William. <laughs> oh. Have you got it? We have every music you can imagine. Have, to, mm -hmm. This song by Fadili William. Actually, it's not the mm -hmm. one. It was um, by another Swahili man, but Fadili William popularized it. Mm -hmm. Gave it a remix. Yes. It's a very philosophical song. And it's, it, what I like about it, it kind of says that you might see difference, but actually the sameness. We are the same. Wow. Whether you are, he compares, for example, uh, a, a bird, a hawk, and a tame bird, a more tame bird, and mm -hmm. says, they are all birds. And uh, so this, he sings really deeply about exploring the world and finding that the, the source is one. The wow. source is one. It's God, actually. He doesn't say the word God, but he traces all that down to a source. So I love that song, Nearly to Partake. As we enjoy that song, we can only wish you a wonderful night. And yes, let's meet same time, same place next Sunday with yet another incredible guest. God bless. <laughs> Nalitupateke, kutoja lipaja, nalibumbu wazi chokola baba. Kula siku lima, wimba siku cheza, heri kuwa yonda kutangana buga. Kula siku lima, wimba siku cheza. Heri kuwa yonda kutaka na mbuga Teniwa moja hawa na faida Kipangana mwewe yupi alozidi hmm. 
Wote ni wamoja hawana faida Kula wangu kuku bila ya sababu Naniuliza po mama jawabu hakuna Kula wangu kuku bila ya sababu Naniuliza po jawabu hakuna Tupateke kutoja lipaja Nalibumbu wazi yogola baba Nalitupateke kutoja lipaja Nalibumbu wazi yogola baba Discs on Capital FM with Simon Cassiate.